Songs have power. Songs stir emotions. Songs move people. And sometimes songs move and stir people in such a way that they want to throw other people off a cliff or over a balcony. That's the rumored case with 90s rapper Vanilla Ice. Perhaps you're not aware of what I'm talking about, so let me explain. Robert Van Winkle, who goes by the better stage name of Vanilla Ice, had a breakout rap hit in 1990 called Ice Ice Baby. You've probably heard of it. But if you were a David Bowie fan, the first time you heard Ice Ice Baby, then you knew that Vanilla Ice had sampled the bass line from one of David Bowie and Queen's classic song, Under Pressure. Queen and David Bowie got together and wrote a song called Under Pressure, and the infamous bass line of that song is what Vanilla Ice sampled. I mean, stole. Vanilla Ice, of course, denied that he sampled the bass line. He said that it was different. Uh, David Bowie and Queen's bass line in their song goes like this. Bum, 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 Vanilla Ice's bass line goes like this. Bum, 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 Vanilla Ice claimed that because he added one extra note, one extra little bum, then it was original. The courts obviously disagreed, and David Bowie and the members of Queen were added as co-writers of the huge hit Ice Ice Baby. In other words, David Bowie and Queen were going to make even more money as musicians. But Vanilla Ice's song copyright issues were far from over. Another man claimed to have co-written the song with Vanilla Ice. I can't remember his name. It's, it's Chocolate something. So you have Vanilla and then you have Chocolate who've written this song. And it's rumored that this man got one of his friends, famed rap icon and businessman Suge Knight, to quote-unquote have a talk with Vanilla Ice. And so the story goes, and who knows if it's true or not, it, the story is that Suge Knight took Vanilla Ice to the balcony of the 15th floor of a hotel in Hollywood or Beverly Hills, and Suge Knight implied that he would throw Vanilla Ice over the balcony if he didn't sign over co-writer song rights to this man. So, being the smart man that he is, Vanilla Ice signed over co-writer's rights to this man. Now, whether or not Suge Knight threatened to throw Vanilla Ice over the balcony, God only knows. Songs have power. And songs stir emotions. And songs move people. And sometimes songs move and stir people to want to throw people over a balcony or, as we'll see today, over a cliff. That's what happened to Jesus once. Jesus returned to his hometown and quoted the lyrics to a song in his sermon. And it made the people, the congregation, so angry that they took him to a cliff on the edge of town and attempted to throw him off. The sermon title today, which is, When the Congregation Wants to Kill the Preacher, is not autobiographical, at least I hope not. We'll see, but it is what we'll see in our passage today. So turn to Mark chapter 6. The congregation will want to kill the preacher when the sermon is over. 
Jesus is in the pulpit in Mark 6 in a synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. And when he's finished, after he gives the benediction and is shaking hands in the back, the church members will take a quick congregational vote and they will decide that they want to kill the preacher. They want to kill Jesus. Jesus will experience suffering and rejection in his hometown in this short passage that we're looking at today. And Mark is giving us a snapshot of what life and ministry was like for Jesus. He suffered. He endured rejection. The path to glory was one of suffering and rejection for the man of sorrows because it was a path that ultimately led to the cross. It's why Jesus came, to live and die and rise again for sinners like us. And what we'll see today, if we read between the lines, if we look at Jesus' sermon manuscript when he's preaching in his hometown, what we'll see is that what was happening when Jesus preached that day can be very personal for each one of us today, right now. So we have to personalize Jesus' sermon that he preached in his hometown of Nazareth. And if we're taking sermon notes in that synagogue as Jesus preaches, what we'll learn is this truth. You were the joy that was set before Jesus as he endured suffering. You were the joy that was set before Jesus as he lived a life of rejection and suffering that ultimately led him to the cross. You and I, his elect people, were on his heart as he endured a life of suffering that culminated in the cross. As the preacher of Hebrews said in his sermon, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, which Mike just read, He says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If we read between the lines of Mark's gospel, and we read between the lines of Jesus' sermon manuscript, what we'll see is that we, the church, the people of God, His bride, His elect people, we are the joy that was set before Him as He endured suffering and rejection throughout His life, which ultimately ended with His death on the cross. We are included in the joy that was set before Jesus as He suffered rejection during His life and as He ultimately suffered on the cross for our sins. So you and I need to personalize it this morning. You need to personalize it. You were the joy that was set before Jesus as he endured suffering. As Jesus experienced suffering and rejection in this life, you were on his heart. So put your name in the blank. Blank was the joy that was set before Jesus as he endured suffering. And in our passage today, we'll see just a sample of the suffering and rejection that Jesus experienced throughout his whole life. We'll see him suffer rejection after he preaches a sermon about how he came to set people free. Think about this and make it personal. 
as Jesus preaches a sermon about how he came to save you. How he came to set you free and to open your blind eyes and to bind up your wounds to release you from oppression. He ends up suffering a death threat on the edge of a cliff for the sermon that he preached about you. Jesus gets rejected for preaching a sermon where he tells the congregation that he came to set you free. It's incredible and it's amazing. Look at Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? And brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. So there's a lot of talk of and books out these days on Christ-centered preaching, on gospel-centered preaching. Well, guess what? Jesus invented it right here. Right here in the synagogue of his hometown, Jesus is teaching us about preaching. He's teaching us about Bible lessons. He's teaching us about how to do Sunday school lessons. He's teaching us that all of our sermons and all of our lessons are to be Christ-centered Jesus is teaching his hometown that the entire Old Testament is Christ-centered and that in order to fully understand a passage, any passage, you have to see it through this lens. When you read the Bible, you have to be looking for, how does this point me to Jesus? And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. He is giving a sermon on Isaiah 61, as we'll see in a moment. His his passage is Isaiah 61, and he's connecting it to himself. So the passage that Jesus is preaching from is Isaiah chapter 61. And in Isaiah, there are four of what scholars call the servant songs. These servant songs highlight the Messiah, the servant who is to come. And each of these four songs contain the word servant. But many scholars also think that Isaiah 61 should be included in the servant songs, even though it does not contain the Hebrew word servant. And I think it should be too. Isaiah 61 is describing what the servant, the spirit-anointed Messiah, will come and do. And this is the song that Jesus is preaching from in his hometown synagogue here in Mark chapter 6. Now, think about this. There was nothing wrong with his preaching. Jesus delivered flawless sermons. As a preacher, I would love to hear all of his sermons. Perfect exegetical work, perfect theological application. And the people who are sitting there that day, They're blown away by his preaching ability, but they're not changed. 
There's not heart transformation. There's not heart change. They're blown away by his preaching abilities and his wisdom in the Old Testament scriptures. But as we'll see in a moment, they don't receive it by faith. They don't believe. Now, Luke will give us more details about this event that's happening in Mark chapter 6 in his gospel. So turn over to Luke chapter 4. Keep your finger in Mark 6, but turn to Luke chapter 4. Matthew's account of this uh, incident in the synagogue in Nazareth is just as brief as Mark's is, but Luke gives us much more detail. Luke tells us in his account that Jesus preached from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. So let's read Luke's account because he's going to give us more details and he's going to fill in a lot of the gaps for us. So turn Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. Passing through their midst, he went away. Did you catch that? They wanted to kill Jesus. I, like most preachers, have received calls and emails and cards ripping my sermons apart, telling me what I could do better here, telling me what I did wrong, telling me how I didn't interpret that passage correctly. But I've never received a death threat yet. They want to take Jesus to the edge of the town and throw him off a cliff because of a sermon, because of the lyrics to a song. Isaiah's servant song in chapter 61. Understand that this is not the devil's first rodeo here in Luke 4. He already tried to get Jesus to jump off the temple to his death right before this in Luke chapter 4. The the section right before this was all about that. Satan took Jesus to the temple and said, just jump off and God will save you. He wanted him to commit suicide. He wanted to kill him. Why? Because Satan has a vendetta against Jesus. He wants to see him die before he gets to the cross. And the devil's preferred method seems to be death by falling from a high place. 
And so the devil stirs up the home crowd, so they take Jesus to the edge of town and try to throw him off a cliff. What a sicko Satan is. The devil is a sicko. So Luke tells us that the passage that Jesus preached from was the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And in his sermon, Jesus connects himself with the spirit-anointed Messiah in Isaiah chapter 61. And that's what the word Messiah in Hebrew means. It means anointed one. That's what the, the, the word Christ means, anointed one. Jesus Christ, Jesus the anointed one. Christ is not his last name. It's, it's the transliteration of that Hebrew word Messiah, and we get Christ, which means anointed one. Jesus the anointed one. The anointed one that Isaiah is talking about in his prophecy. And that's what Jesus tells those in the synagogue that day. That this passage about the anointed Messiah is being fulfilled right before their eyes. Jesus is saying that his mission as the spirit anointed Messiah is to bring good news to the poor and to bind up the brokenhearted and to proclaim liberty to the captives and to comfort all who mourn. That's what Isaiah says in chapter 61 of his prophecy. And then Jesus echoes Isaiah's lyrics here in the synagogue that the Messiah's ministry was one of helping people in trouble, helping people in bondage, helping people whose hearts are broken. And whose heart has not been broken in this world? Has your heart been broken? Maybe your heart's breaking today. Well, I have good news for you. Jesus came for people like you. Jesus came for people who have been beat up and bruised by this broken world that we live in. Been beat up and bruised by sin, Adam's sin. Jesus came to comfort you, to bandage you, to heal you, to care for you. He is the spirit-anointed Messiah who came to bind up the wounds of the brokenhearted. And so how does Jesus do it? How does he fulfill this prophecy of Isaiah's? He does it by preaching the gospel, which is exactly what Jesus was doing in the synagogue in Nazareth. Luke tells us in verse 22 that they marveled at the gracious words coming from his mouth. That's preaching. Gracious words Gospel words that comfort, gracious words that offer hope, gracious words that heal. Jesus quotes Isaiah's lyrics when Isaiah says, The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives. So what is this good news? The answer is that the gospel graciously announces that Christ has won the victory over everything that's against us. Broken hearts are healed when the gospel is preached. People who are in bondage are set free when they hear the good news of God's mercy and grace. Those who are oppressed are set free and healed when they hear of God's favor. The blind see when Jesus is preached, when gracious words are delivered to weary sinners. Alec Motier says the phrase in Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1 where he says recovery of sight to the blind. Motier says it has the idea of a real eye opener. That's what Jesus came to do, to preach the good news of the kingdom, to have people say your sermons were a real eye opener. 
Your mercy and gentleness to me was a real eye-opener. Your healings and the works that you are doing are real eye-openers. Blind eyes, spiritually blind eyes being opened. And after Jesus read these verses, after he read the lyrics to Isaiah's song in the synagogue, and after he wrapped up his sermon, he looked around and said, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. This was history in the making in Podunk, Backwoods, Nazareth. Right then and right there, a 700-plus-year-old prophecy was being fulfilled in a tiny synagogue in the backwoods of Israel. And right here and right now, this scripture is being fulfilled as I preach in this sanctuary. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news. And this passage in Isaiah is being fulfilled right now here at Grace as children in Sunday school classes hear about Jesus. Every week at Grace, Isaiah 61 is being fulfilled here in these walls because the Spirit of the Lord is upon our teachers. Think about that. Isaiah prophesied in the 700s B.C. And what he said would happen is happening here in this church Every single week. It's history in the making. It's a real eye-opener. That's cool. Let me take a moment and make a plug for you to get involved and serve here in children's ministry or with our youth, with our students. And here it is. You can fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said over 2,700 years or so ago. By serving and telling kids about Jesus and about how merciful he is, how forgiving he is, how kind, how loving he is. Think about that. Isaiah prophesied over 2,700 years ago. And that scripture can be fulfilled as the Holy Spirit works through you when you share Jesus with kids here at Grace. So, go to Michelle. Go to Paula. Go to Randy. Or go to James when he gets back from his sabbatical and tell them, I want to help fulfill Isaiah's prophecy. Where can I serve you and help these kids? I want to help fulfill a 2,700 plus year old prophecy right here, right now, in this church every week. So put me to work. I want to share gracious gospel words with the young people of this church. That would freak them out. If you left today and went up to them and said, I want to serve, where can I do it? You want to freak Pastor James out? When he comes back from his sabbatical, go tell him you want to work with the students of grace. Tell him that you want to be an instrument through which the Spirit of God works to bring gracious words and good news to poor students and to bind up the hearts of brokenhearted students and to proclaim liberty to students who are held captive and to comfort all those students who mourn. And that describes teenagers right there, by the way. Teenagers were made to hear the hope out of Isaiah 61. And that could be you. That would freak James and Tiffany out if about 20 to 30 of you adults did this. They would freak out in a good way. So why not? What better way to live your life than to pour it out for children and teenagers? To pour out your life for the next generation. It seems like I, I, I read a song in the Psalms about the generation before handing down the gospel to the next generation. It seems like I read that somewhere. We want to know something. I still remember every Sunday school teacher that I had and every youth pastor that poured into me. And you could be that person. 
you could be an Isaiah 61 fulfilling instrument in God's hands here at Grace. Something for you to think about and pray about. Okay, back to that synagogue in Nazareth because Jesus is not going to win friends and influence people with his sermon. Those in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth had their own ideas about him. To them, he was just the carpenter's son. Mark tells us in verse 3 that they thought Jesus was just the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. He was just the older brother to all of his sisters. He was just Mary's oldest son, that's all. The boy that grew up in Nazareth and helped his dad Joseph build a thriving carpentry business, that's all, that's all he is. But they didn't know that Jesus was actually the spirit-anointed Messiah that Isaiah spoke of in his song. And just like Isaiah said, Jesus came preaching gracious words, God's favor, God's grace for sinners. He came preaching freedom, preaching good news, and his hometown did not want it. That's why Jesus says in verse 4, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And it's why he could only perform a handful of miracles there. The reason? Unbelief. They didn't believe. Unbelief was what kept them from experiencing God's grace, the Lord's favor. So Luke tells us in his account that Jesus reminded the people that when Israel rejected God's prophets in the Old Testament, God would send the prophets elsewhere, even to Gentiles. And when they hear this, that ticks them off. When Jesus says that when Israel rejects God's grace, God will then extend his grace to Gentiles. When they hear that, they lose it. They are angry. And this is when they have a congregational meeting and vote to kill Jesus by throwing him off a cliff. Their unbelief kept them from experiencing God's grace, God's favor that day. Unbelief takes offense at grace. Jesus says who he is and what he does, and unbelief takes offense at it takes offense at grace. And they took offense at Jesus. Jesus suffered rejection because of their unbelief. And as Jesus suffered rejection, as he was pushed to the edge of that cliff, you know what, Christian? You were on his mind. Think about that. Right then and there, as Jesus was looking over the edge of that cliff, as they were getting ready to push him off, You were on his mind. When he suffered, he was thinking of you. You ever been to the Grand Canyon? Maybe it's because I'm afraid of heights, but it's like, I don't like getting too close to the edge. Any of those people that walk out in those areas where you're like, dude, you're going to fall. Jesus is at the edge of a cliff about to be pushed off. And guess who he's thinking about? You. When he suffered. When he suffered a death threat. When he's about to be pushed off a cliff to his death, he was thinking about you. Remember, you were the joy that was set before Jesus as he endured suffering. As he suffered and was rejected, you were the joy that kept him going. Your name was written on his heart as he suffered. Your name was graven in his hands on the cross. As he had to live life in a fallen world, you were the joy that kept him going. As Jesus suffered in his life, Isaiah's lyrics from the servant songs were giving him strength to endure, power to accomplish God's plan. Isaiah's servant songs were stirring his emotions. This is why he came, to set people free, to heal people, to bind up their wounds. To set you free, to heal you, to bind up your words. 
wounds. His sermon was about you that day. He almost died because he was preaching and telling people how he came to save you. But to his hometown of Nazareth, Jesus was just a human being. He was just a hometown boy. And that's why people in his hometown are shocked at his wisdom and the mighty works that he does. To them, Jesus is just Mary and Joe's little boy. He worked in his dad's shop. Jesus probably made some people's kitchen tables in Nazareth. He had a paper route when he was 11. He was in Boy Scouts and had to learn how to tie all those knots. He broke his arm that time Darkon Goldberg pushed him off the slide. He got braces when he was 15. He was just a normal kid in everyone's eyes. Except, as scripture tells us, he wasn't just a normal kid. He was God incarnate. He was the God-man. And those two natures, his two natures, God and man, were united together in one person. And so here in Mark chapter 6, the people in Nazareth would get an A-plus on their understanding of Jesus' humanity. They really believed that he was just a human being like them. But they would fail the test as it concerns his deity because they did not believe his claims. They did not believe that he was God. When Jesus said in Luke 4.21, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. After he read from Isaiah 61, they did not believe. They accepted the fact that he healed people. They could not deny his mighty works. They believed that he taught with incredible wisdom, that he was a great preacher, but they could not accept the claims that Jesus was making, that he, the hometown boy, was the spirit-anointed Messiah that Isaiah was speaking of in his songs. To them, he was just a human being who somehow could do a few miracles. They didn't believe And so I'm sure the local synagogue had to issue an apology to the community because they had a guest teacher, a hometown boy, who preached and claimed to be the Messiah. Think about that. Jesus comes home and they want him to preach in the synagogue. A hometown boy who's making a name for himself throughout Israel as an up-and-coming preacher. So when he returns home for Thanksgiving, they want him to preach at the synagogue. And Jesus does. And they're blown away. Until he tells them that a 700 plus year old prophecy was being fulfilled in their midst. That he was the one who Isaiah was talking about. That he was the spirit anointed Messiah. They aren't buying it. And Luke tells us in his account, they took Jesus out to a cliff to throw him off. They were so offended by his claims that they wanted to kill him. They took Jesus to a cliff and were going to throw him off. And yet... Luke tells us that Jesus just walked right through their midst. We don't get any more details than that. I don't know if Jesus used the Jedi mind trick and was like, you're not going to throw me off the cliff. I don't know if he was in handcuffs and he just broke them. Luke doesn't tell us. Luke just says he was at the edge of the cliff about to be thrown off. He turned around and just walked through the crowd. And then he left and he went on to other villages. You can bet it was in the papers the next day. I bet the synagogue issued a public apology in the newspaper the next day for having a hometown boy preach who claimed to be the Messiah. Maybe that's how the Nazareth Times newspaper headline read the next day after Jesus left. Galilean area religious institution. Nazareth synagogue apologizes to valued members. Some synagogues still know how religion is done. That's from a show. Some of you might get that. If not, let it go. But Jesus wasn't going to let his hometown define him. 
Jesus would not allow his hometown to come up with their own version of Jesus apart from Isaiah's song. And he won't let us do that either. He won't let us define him. He won't allow us to come up with our own version of Jesus isolated from his word. Listen, Jesus is the king. And as the king, Jesus is not going to share his throne with us. If we don't come to him in faith, Simply the empty hands of faith, trusting in him and his work in his ways, then he moves on. He will not bless our designer lives and our dreams and hopes if we are not ready to submit to him. He doesn't come along and say this to us. Listen, I know you don't want all of me. I get it. But here's what I'm going to do for you. Just tip your hat my way a little. Throw a bumper sticker on your car with my name on it and live a little wild and crazy, and I'll still bless you. Just give me a few crumbs. Just work with me here a little, okay? you got to work with me. Meet me halfway. That's all I'm looking for. No. Jesus demands it all. He demands all of us. He will not be the icing on the cake of our dreams, which have nothing to do with him. Why? Is it because he's so insecure? Is it because he's a spoiled brat that just wants his way? No. He's the king. He's God. And he knows, because he created this world, and he created you and me, that the life I just described will not bring us joy, and it will not bring him glory. And he knows that. We don't know that, because we still want to keep living that way. We want a little bit of Jesus, and all that the world can offer, and all that we can dream up. Just let me live my way, Jesus, but will you please bless my designer life? Answer, no. Why? Because Jesus knows that that kind of life will not satisfy us and it will not bring him glory. Jesus, as the icing on your cake of dreams and your designer life, will not bring you the joy that God designed for you. It will actually frustrate you and it will please the devil. Oh, the devil, he'll get much joy out of it. But true, real, authentic, Christ-centered joy only comes when we come to Jesus with empty hands and say, all of you, I want all of you. I want to live for your glory. I want to live for your kingdom. That's faith. That's trust. That's a life he will bless. Now, of course, we'll sin. Of course, we will not do this perfectly. Duh, you know that and I know that. But there's a difference between Jesus, I want you to bless my dreams and all that I want, but you have to ride in the back seat. And Jesus, I need you. I'm a mess. I'm a wreck, but I want you and I want to live for your kingdom. There's a big difference between those two. And that's why Jesus couldn't and wouldn't do any miracles in his hometown. Mark tells us in verse 6 that he did just a few miracles for people that were trusting in him and recognized him As the answer, look at verse 6. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And so he moved on. As we saw last week, faith is coming to Jesus and falling down on your knees and trusting in him and what he has done for you. Faith is admitting that you are helpless to save yourself. Will you come to Jesus today? Will you turn from living for you from living like you're the king or the queen of the world, will you turn away from that and come home? 
And if you're here today and you are saved and you are a Christian, you've fallen on your knees with the empty hands of faith and said, I'm a mess, I'm a wreck, I need help. And Jesus, you're my help, you're my everything. If that's you and you're a Christian, then this is true of you. You were the joy that was set before Jesus as he endured suffering. And this is also true of you, Christian. God loves you with a wonderful, never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. You are clean, Christian. You are loved. You are forgiven. There is no condemnation. Your past has been thrown into the depths of the sea. The blood of Jesus has washed you clean because Jesus took your place on the cross. His perfect life of obedience is your record now. And your sorry past with all of its sin and rebellion and shame and guilt has been placed on Jesus. He wore that on the cross. And he has given you the righteousness that you need to be able to stand in God's presence. Because he's so holy. And Christian, you now have a great high priest who intercedes for you. And now, Jesus can't remember your sin. You have been adopted into God's family. Your life is hid with Christ on high. You are in union with Christ now, so much so that when God the Father looks at you, he sees Jesus. That's amazing. Right now, Christian, God the Father is looking at you. And he sees Jesus. He doesn't see your family devotions last week where you're trying to read the Bible to your kids and teach them about Jesus. And you say, would you please just sit down for a minute so I can tell you about God? Like none of us have ever done that, have we? When he sees you, he doesn't see that. When God the Father looks at you, Christian, he sees Jesus, his son. And it brings a smile to his face and it warms his heart. That's how tight the bond, how tight the union is with Jesus. God can look back over your sin-stained past and forget what he has seen. It's incredible, isn't it? And it can be true of you if you believe, if you trust in Jesus, if you turn away from your sin and your rebellion and you fall before him on your knees with the empty hands of faith. Don't Be like the people in Jesus' hometown in that synagogue in Nazareth. Believe. Alec Motier says, How blithely we read that for the joy that was before him he endured the cross. And many have been heard to say that the joy in question was the crown that awaited him. Very likely so. But Isaiah says it was the joy of saving us. We think of the intended humiliation and actual pain of the crown of thorns, but to the Lord Jesus, it was a bridegroom's priestly headdress. We picture the bedraggled and blood-stained seamless robe that he wore to Calvary, but to him it was a wedding garment. His Calvary joy was wedding day joy. He was winning his bride. This is how much we mean to him. It's true for you, Christian. Jesus suffered and experienced rejection all through his life for you. Every day, it was wedding day joy. 
I can't wait to be with my bride. I can't wait to redeem my bride every single day as he suffered and experienced rejection. He's saying, I'm doing this for my bride. I'm doing this for the ones that I love, the ones that I will redeem. His Calvary joy was wedding day joy. He was winning you, Christian. That's how much you mean to him. You were the joy that was set before Jesus as he endured suffering. And when you forget that, because you will, and when you despair of how you don't measure up, which you will, do what these song lyrics say, which we're about to sing in a moment. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. To look on Him and pardon me. When Jesus suffered, He never forgot you once. When He was on the edge of that cliff that and they were about to throw him over. You were on his mind. On the cross, you were on his mind. His Calvary joy was wedding day joy. He was winning you. That's how much you mean to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful truth that we have seen in your word. That Jesus endured suffering and rejection his whole life on our behalf. And when he suffered rejection, persecution, and hatred, amazingly, we were on his heart. When they drug him to the edge of the cliff, he was thinking about us and how his life couldn't end there. He had to go to the cross to pay the penalty. For our sins. It's unbelievable. It's incredible. And perhaps that's why you chose to call it good news. Because it is good news for sinners like us. In Jesus' name, amen.